Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is episode number five in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, March the 1st. First, I talked to Luke Anea about his business iAuditor, the world's most powerful checklist and inspection app. He'll talk about Spotlight, a real-time incident report app, and how his apps are changing the way businesses deal with risks and OHS. He'll talk about how he built his $400 million business and how he got New York investment firm Tiger Global to invest in his company. And then I talked to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's latest unemployment and wages figures. But first, let's talk to Luke Anea. Luke, uh, tell us about uh, Safety Culture, this uh, new Australian workplace safety startup. Yeah, uh, we started uh, back in 2004, actually. Um, I used to be a private investigator, spying on people who'd been injured at work and uh, thought this was pretty crazy, um, waiting for people to get injured and then spying them. And uh, uh, I created a, a document or a training document business um, for the Australian um, construction industry originally, and um, and that was that was great. But then by around 2011, 2012, we could see everyday people now had um, you know a computer in their pocket, uh, and they were people who didn't normally sit in front of a computer. And so I thought, you know, it was perhaps a chance to um, uh, build some tools, and and we built a checklist app. 
and, and soon as every day people would download it and use it in their workplaces and turns out a few of them have. You tell us about your iAuditor app. Yeah, so iAuditor was based on the research around checklists uh, improving standards in the workplace and that sort of started from the 1930s when um, uh, when the aviation industry adopted it and we saw research from uh, medicine and uh, yeah, some of the highest trained people in the world, surgeons, uh, reducing complication rates when they're using checklists in theatre. And so it was based off that research where we thought if we gave people the ability to build their own checklists uh, on their phones um, and then share them with their teams and collect all that information so they can then get insights from it, um, that that would be valuable and it will help them maintain standards. And so now it's used all around the world and, um, and we collect about 400 million uh, responses a year from people that um, enter information in and and um, take photos. So it's been been pretty interesting uh, project. So this this is human entered data. That's all human entered data. So there's there's a good and a, and a plus and a minus sort of side to that, I guess. The plus is that it's high quality information. Like people are physically checking. You know, if it's a you know a, a Starbucks store, they're checking if the floors are clean and there's no you know liquids on the floor, or the kitchens are clean, things like that. So it's it's really high quality information. The the sort of negative to it is that it relies on people to actually check stuff all the time. And so we're looking at automating as much of that as we can going forward. We've got an IoT team that started uh, earlier this year and we're now putting sensors into workplaces. But to date, all of that data that we've collected has all been human data entry. And uh, tell us about Spotlight. Yeah, so Spotlight was based on you know, teams um, reporting information when something has, has gone wrong. And we had a couple of scenarios where we saw you know, the challenges people have with, with sharing information quickly. They, they phone each other, they email sometimes, they SMS, they use WhatsApp. Uh, and there was no great sort of centralisation of all that, all the communications when, when there's a problem in the workplace. And not just major incidents, but also, you know, everyday things like maintenance issues or, or spills and things. And so we thought, how do you make it very easy for people to be able to take a photo uh, and automatically, as soon as they choose a tag um, on the type of incident, they, they then have to find people who get notified and can respond to it. And um, the, if you're, the, the Grenfell Tower incident in London that happened last year, where 71 people died when the, um, the cladding on the building kind of accelerated the fire. They had the senior management of the council, you know, it was 1am, they were asleep, and we were thinking about how to how do you wake people up? They had to physically go and door knock, and um, people sleep now with their phones on silent. And so we're looking at how do you override silence uh, and, and still blast their phones if it's a serious incident, um, and how do you get information to the right people very quickly? So Spotlight's been... Um, built around that initial uh, concept and we're even seeing like schools in the US now they'll have tags in spotlight for a say active shooter and they instantly can let all of the teachers know but they also have the local sheriff's department on their um, team list as well and so um, they can share information very quickly and as anyone takes more photos or adds to it any everyone else on the team gets to see that. How do you think your apps are changing the way businesses deal with risks, risks and occupational health and safety? Yeah we're, we're really for facilitating the flow of information that either wasn't collected before. Uh, so obviously the starting point was, was pens and paper. Uh, and then some people have desktop software that um, is quite cumbersome and uh, takes a lot of time to use and so people will avoid it. And so we're helping people share information much faster and then also making it easier and more fun to collect that information. Um, and so more people will tend to, to participate. And, um, and that then 
gives you the analytics. I, I guess one of the distinctions is that people have tried to solve these problems for a long time, but they always solve it from the management's perspective, which is, you know, we want this type of information, A, B, and C. We're going to send a request out to people in the field to collect that information. What we've done is given the people in the field the ability to uh, automate or digitize their workflows, but also customize them and change them to suit their needs, which initially is scary to management. It's like, we don't want people in the field changing the information that gets collected. But what's actually happened is because it's easy for people to be able to create their own workflows, they're collecting more information than management could have ever dreamed of. And so now we give them really powerful ways to make sense of that data and uh, and everybody wins. And so it's it's been, uh, it's not intuitive, I guess, to, to say, let's start with the people in the field and help them. But um, when you've got that type of adoption and um, participation from those guys, it's amazing what uh, what comes back. That's that's extraordinary. Now, uh, how many how many employees do you have, and uh, what sort of growth are you looking at? Uh, we've got about two hundred and eighty odd people today. It changes every month. Uh, that's up from about eighty five people at the start of last year. So yeah, it's been growing much quicker. We've now raised like near on hundred million dollars. I think ninety eight million. And so the most recent round we did a few months back um, has allowed us to accelerate our growth and um, and go after. Uh, you know, the bigger opportunities as well, in addition to just, you know, checklists and, and internet reporting. And so that now as we move into um, hardware and, and IoT, um, we can do a lot more than what we originally uh, set out to do. Now, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the extraordinary parts is uh, one of your latest funding rounds was led by the New York investment uh, firm Tiger Global Management. That's right. Yeah, Tiger are a great firm to work with. They were good partners. We spoke to you know, a number of people who had been you know, expressing an interest to try and uh, work with us over, over a period of time. And in the end, we decided to go with those guys because um, they had a track record for backing founders consistently again and again. Uh, you know, they backed um, the guys at uh, Flipkart in India very, very early on uh, when the company was, was only worth about $30 million and I think 77% was sold to Walmart this year for $17 billion. And so they had a good track record of continuing to support founders in, in different companies and, and also had experience with you know bringing in, I think they brought uh, SoftBank into uh, Flipkart and um, they brought kind of the, the later stage funds and those bigger funds in as well. So it gives us plenty of headroom to be able to continue to grow and uh, and go after the opportunity in front of us. Now, uh, now, being a startup, you started up obviously in a garage. How important is it for you to maintain... The- the culture of your company? It's uh, its the most important thing today. I think uh, originally all I focused on was product, but today if we don't maintain a great culture, then we don't attract and keep the best people who can build more of those great products that, that are coming through. And so, um, you know, it's something we pay a lot of attention to and uh, making sure that, that um, you know, we, we, people who come in are really adding to our culture and, and not detracting from it. And that means, you know, people who are, solution focused people who are able to really bring the best out in, in their team and, and help everybody work to a higher standard. And so um, it's not easy, but um, it's really important for us. And um, as we continue to scale, sometimes the wheels fall off a little bit in areas and, um, and we've got five offices. So um, each office has slightly different uh, culture and things, but our values and our, our core um, principles don't change. And, and so yeah, we, we make sure we... Um, maintain that as best we can uh do you have do you have difficulty finding enough good recruits for that yeah i think everybody the world over um you know struggles 
particularly in in uh, technology companies, to find you know, the appropriate experience and talent. Um, and, and roles are changing. I think if you even if you take the CMO role, which is a, a role that we've had open for a while, um, the CMO that's needed today uh, is very different to the CMO of 10 years ago. And so the people with uh, you know, large-scale you know, global experience don't necessarily have the experience that you need from a CMO today to be able to, to, to run these sort of specialist areas of marketing now. And so, yeah, it's, it's evolving and it's, uh, it is challenging, but... Um, yeah, we're um, making this up each day as we go along, and that's part of uh, you know pioneering a new a new path. And um, we're always on the lookout for great people. And particularly, we've had a very light executive team. Um, there's really only been uh, two of us who have been um, that are operating at that level. And we have a very small board structure. And so we've been very nimble, but I think we're at a point now where we need to get some more of that um, yeah, executive capability on and, and scale up. So we're looking for that right now. Well, Luke and Nia, it's terrific talking to you and uh, wishing Safety Culture the best of luck. Thank you very much for your time. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Callum Pickering, the latest wages figures were a little disappointing. Yeah, another disappointing quarter for wages. Um, look, growth is picking up a little bit. It's just much, much slower than I think anyone would want. Um, a 0.6% outcome this quarter for private sector wage growth, um, which pushed annual growth up to 2.3%. It's the highest in three or four years, but 2.3% um, within a historical context is still incredibly low, particularly at this point in the economic cycle. It's very low. Um, traditionally, wage growth would have been much higher if the unemployment rate was down. Traditionally, when the unemployment rate was down at 5%, you'd normally expect wage growth to be at 3% or even higher. Today, it's just 2.3%. And that suggests we still have a long way to go before wage growth gets back to what was once considered a normal level. Right. Uh, so what, what was the situation across industries? Um, so there's a broad range across industries. We've got certain industries such as uh, retail and, and mining, which uh, where wage growth remains quite weak, below 2%. We've got... Other industries such as healthcare and education and arts and recreation where wage growth is near 3% is actually consistent with its um, average over the past decade. So labour market conditions are varying significantly across the Australian economy and across Australian industries. Uh, Tell us that uh, while it's tracking normally, uh, everything's going to be very gradual very slow. That's right. Um, I mean, as we've experienced over the past you know, two or three years, um, any improvement in wage growth is going to be very slow. We're not going to get back to 3% or higher overnight. Um, if everything goes as planned, and that's not certain that that's going to happen, but if everything goes as planned, um, we might get back to 3% wage growth in, in maybe two years' time. I mean, the, the key for higher wage growth is labour market slack, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and that's the big problem we've got at the moment. While the unemployment rate of 5% seems pretty positive, um, it's these other broader measures of unemployment which are the concern. So the underutilisation rate, which includes not just people who are unemployed, but also people who are employed but seeking more hours, those we call underemployed, is currently at uh, 13.2%, which is still quite high by historical standards. Now, based on some research I've uh, recently done, it appears as though the underutilisation rate would have to get down to around 12% before wage growth got up to 3%. So underemployment would have to get up to down to 12%? Uh, the underutilisation rate would have to get down to 12%.
yes. Um, so that would require a further decline in the unemployment rate as well as a decline in the underemployment rate as, as well. Can you explain to me the link between wages and underutilisation? How does that work? Well, it's largely a competition issue. So when there are a lot of people who are unemployed, there are a lot of people competing for the available jobs that are out there. And that gives employees, uh, sorry, employers options. Right, they, they know that people are a little bit desperate. They, they know that they're the ones who control the process. When the unemployment rate gets down to very low, say it dropped to below 4%, suddenly it's much harder to find suitable candidates. Okay, They might only be able to get one or two qualified uh, people for a job they're looking to fill. And that means that the, uh, the job seeker or the potential employee suddenly has more power in the process. And so they can ask for a little bit more or play uh, employers off against one another, and that can ultimately result in, in higher wages across the board. Right, but we're still some way off from that. Yeah, we're still a good year or two away from that. Moving from an underutilisation rate of 13.2 to 12% doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it will take at least a couple of years, and that assumes that nothing happens in the Australian economy that could cause um, labour market conditions to soften or employment growth to, uh, to ease, which is also quite possible. From the RBA perspective, uh, this would be probably neutral data, wouldn't it? To a large degree. I mean, the, the labour market figures themselves were, were reasonably strong. I mean, you saw that um, employment was up 39,000. That's a positive result, and it was all driven by full-time employment. Again, a positive result. Participation has increased to its highest level in history. Again, a, a pretty positive um, result. But I think the Reserve Bank would be quite concerned about the outlook for employment. A lot of what they're tracking at the moment suggests that employment growth could quite possibly ease over the remainder of this year, um, particularly due to factors such as the housing market and the impact that might have on um, financial services, construction, um, real estate agents, as well as, um, and most importantly, in terms of uh, retail. Um, so that's four sectors that could potentially see much softer employment growth due to the declining house prices. And that's because the wealth effect of house prices on the broader economy, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly a key part of that. Um, and if we look at other labour market measures, such as um, job advertisements, for example, we are seeing much softer activity there. And that does point towards um, slower employment growth going forward. So if that happens, obviously this path towards higher wages will be delayed once again. So the other interesting thing about employment was that the figures were very good for New South Wales and Victoria. Not too bad in Queensland, but kind of moderate. But Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania, it was bad. Absolutely. Um, what we have at the moment is a bit of a, a two-speed labour market. We've got New South Wales and Victoria where... The unemployment rate is between 4 and 4.5%, pretty strong results. And then every other state, we have an unemployment rate of over 6%. And what's really interesting, particularly from, from the perspective of the Reserve Bank, is that they're anticipating that there could be some slowdown in employment growth, which will largely be concentrated in New South Wales and Victoria. And if that occurs, can these other states, which are not performing very well, can they fill in the slack? And that's a big question mark, I think, that hangs over the labour market um, this year. That will be a fascinating aspect to watch in the lead-up to the election because Western Australia, South Australia will have a lot of marginal seats and uh, that could affect voters, couldn't it? Well, the economy is always a driving force behind voter sentiment and I think it would be understandable if 
uh, voters in these smaller states would be very frustrated at the economic conditions that they're um, experiencing right now. Now, that's mostly a state issue, um, but it naturally plays out on the federal level as well. And of course, uh, I mean, there, there's a broader narrative going on at the moment that the RBA will be cutting interest rates, possibly in the next month or so, possibly around the time of the May election. Uh, now, uh, what's your view about the, the employment figures? I mean, what do they say about the prospects of the RBA cutting interest rates? Well, if you were to isolate just the employment figures, you would think that the likelihood of the RBA cutting rates is pretty low. Um, the employment figures have been pretty strong. 300,000 more people were added to the labour force last year, and that, that's pretty good. It's when you take a step back and look at things more broadly that the justification for a potential rate cut begins to materialise. And it's largely concentrated in this house price narrative and what that could potentially do to employment in uh, sectors directly impacted by house prices, as well as the potential wealth effect on on household consumption, which of course accounts for over half the Australian economy. If house prices continue to fall, then the likelihood of the RBA cutting rates increases. Um, And at the moment, there seems to be no real end in sight to what's happening with house prices in Sydney and Melbourne. But uh, labour market figures uh, usually lag economic uh, activity, don't they? That's absolutely right, and that's one of the keys here. So while the employment figures for January were pretty good, we're concerned about the future. We're concerned about how this could change over the next 6 to 12 months, and that's going to be increasingly the focus of the RBA going forward as they try to understand what's happening with house prices and, and consumption and the impact that's going to have on employment wages. So from the RBA's perspective, they'd be hoping, wouldn't they, that um, the labour market is, would be acting as a barrier against the falling house prices? Absolutely, and that's largely what's been happening at the moment. It's helped to contain some of the damage from lower house prices and, and that wealth effect. It's just a question of whether that will continue going forward. And I think uh, internally at the RBA and certainly amongst a lot of market economists out there, there is that concern that uh, the labour market may begin to soften a little bit and that barrier will begin to break down a little bit as well. And what does that mean for interest rates? Uh, well, look, if I was a betting man, I would say that it is likely that the RBA will cut rates this year. I don't think they'll do it in May for the election. I think they might wait a little bit longer, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if maybe in August or November um, they might cut rates. And the reason for August and November is simply because that's the month where they release their quarterly statement on monetary policy. And in recent years, they have preferred to move when they have that opportunity to communicate their position more fully. Well, Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for having me. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Securities Exchange Commission says Tesla Chief Executive Elon Musk violated an agreement that settled fraud charges with the SEC by tweeting material information about his electric car company without prior review and should be held in contempt. The potential repercussions are big. It's possible that Musk could be unseated as CEO and banned from serving as an officer of a publicly traded company. Musk, who has repeatedly expressed his distaste and disrespect for the SEC, tweeted last week that Tesla would produce 500,000 cars this year. In doing so, he violated a deal requiring pre-approval for tweets containing information material to Tesla or its shareholders, the SEC said in its court filing. 
And President Donald Trump said he'll extend a deadline to raise tariffs on Chinese goods until he can meet Chinese President Xi Jinping after the two sides made substantial progress in the latest round of trade talks that wrapped up on Sunday in Washington. The US has made substantial progress in our trade talks with China on important structural issues including intellectual property protection, technology transfer, agricultural services, currency and many other issues, Trump said in a Twitter posting on Sunday evening. As a result of these very productive talks, I will be delaying the US increase in tariffs now scheduled for March 1st. If the sides make further headway in negotiations, Trump said he and Xi plan to meet at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida to conclude an agreement, although he didn't offer any details on the timing of the meeting or how long he expects the tariff extension to last. And the European Union is considering telling Theresa May that if she can't get a Brexit deal through Parliament and wants to delay the departure date, the country will have to stay in the bloc until 2021. Bloomberg reports that senior EU officials, several governments, back an extension of as much as 21 months beyond the scheduled March 29 exit day. The idea will enrage pro-Brexit lawmakers in May's party, who will probably see it as a tactic to get them to back May's deal. Officials on both sides now expect some kind of extension as a way of avoiding a no-deal scenario that businesses consider catastrophic. The idea of a short three-month postponement has long been floated. But EU officials now say three months wouldn't be enough to break the deadlock. That would only work if the deal had been ratified by Parliament and more time was needed just to pass outstanding legislation. This coincides with Theresa May bowing to overwhelming pressure to reduce the risk of a disorderly departure from the European Union, accepting that Parliament should have the chance to delay Britain's exit if it rejects her withdrawal plans. Mrs May's concession in the face of internal rebellion was the latest in a long line of retreats as she has struggled to cajole her fractious party into supporting a revised version of the deal on withdrawal or Brexit that lawmakers threw out by massive margin last month. And Australia's housing market continues to trend downwards with Australian Bureau of Statistics figures showing construction work done slipped 3.1% in the December quarter coming in 2.1% lower than it was a year ago. The weekly ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Rating fell by 1% to 114.1 points after rising 1% in the prior week. And don't hold your breath for a big pay rise after the International Monetary Fund projected that incomes adjusted for inflation would average just 0.3% through to 2024, which is well below the average of 1.8% annual growth experienced since the 1960s. This comes after the Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe said that low wages were a bigger economic risk than falling house prices. And Bill Shorten is set to hit banks and financial institutions with a new levy for a $640 million fund to support victims of misconduct as Labor sharpens its attacks on poor corporate behaviour ahead of the expected May federal election. The opposition announced a banking fairness fund to be imposed in addition to the coalition's banking levy and to be paid by financial institutions among Australia's top 100 listed companies, with the amount they pay linked to their market capitalisation. The pre-election pledge would raise $160 million in new taxes a year for four years, hitting not only the big banks, Commonwealth, NAB, Westpac and ANZ, but also Suncor Group, Bank of Queensland and the Bendigo and Adelaide banks. Financial institutions AMP and Macquarie Group would also pay. 
Half the money from the bank tax would be used to double the number of taxpayer-funded financial counsellors, from 500 to 1,000, giving free advice and advocacy to an extra 125,000 people a year. The federal opposition argues it's the best way to respond to the findings of the Banking Royal Commission, promoting and funding new services in the financial sector. The nation's big banks have already been hit with a tax on their operations, announced under former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has launched a pre-election climate change policy, pledging $2 billion for projects to bring down Australia's emissions. The Climate Solutions Fund is an extension of former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's Emissions Reduction Fund. The program includes funds for land revegetation, reducing bushfire risk and replacing refrigeration systems. Senior Liberals had flagged the need for new climate policies ahead of the expected election in May. And a massive expansion of the Snowy Hydro Scheme has been officially approved in a bid to force energy prices down and make power more reliable. Early works on the pump hydroelectricity project can now begin, with Prime Minister Scott Morrison visiting Tumut in southern New South Wales to announce approval. Pumped hydro works by using cheap electricity, usually at night, to pump water back up a hill and into the dam, where it is stored until energy demands start to peak during the day. Snowy Hydro's board approved the final investment on December the 12th, and the government is satisfied the project stacks up. Taxpayers will chip in $1.38 billion with Snowy Hydro to fund the rest. When completed, the new project will increase generation capacity by 2,000 megawatts and provide 175 hours of energy storage, enough to power 500,000 homes during peak times. It will create 2,400 jobs in construction and support up to 5,000 direct and indirect jobs across the Snowy Mountains region. The Snowy 2.0 proposal was one of former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's pet projects before he was dumped by his party for pushing for action on climate change. It's been a tough two weeks for Australia's coal industry. First, there was a court ruling blocking a new mine on climate change grounds. Then, one of the world's largest producer, Glencore PLC, capped output growth. And finally, China was seen to be slowing down Australian imports. Of all the shocks to hit the industry, it was perhaps Justice Brian Preston's ruling in a Sydney courtroom on February the 8th that has the farthest reaching consequences. Gloucester Resources' Rocky Hill coal mine proposal had already been rejected by the New South Wales government due to its potential adverse impact on the local environment and community. But Preston went a step further in throwing out Gloucester's appeal, saying it would add to greenhouse gas emissions at a time when rapid and deep cuts were needed. Coal may also be an unwitting victim of trade tensions between Australia and China, with the Asian nation jamming up imports of coal from Australia, with at least one major port suspending customs clearance. The developments are symptoms of the fuel's decline and likely signal headwinds for the industry in Australia, the world's second biggest supplier of coal used for power generation and steelmaking, where the government estimates some $70 billion of new projects are in the pipeline. And Bigger Cheese is closing its cheddar and mozzarella cheese manufacturing facility in Coburg, with immediate effect, with redundancies to follow. The dairy and spreads manufacturer did not say how many jobs at the Melbourne facility could go. Some staff will be offered employment at other bigger sites, but there will be redundancies. And National Australia Bank, which was singled out for criticism by the Royal Commission leading to the resignation of its chairman and CEO, has signalled it will shed up to 180 jobs as part of an overhaul of its branches. The restructure aims to better align rosters with customer banking habits, with advisory roles to be targeted. Employees have already been notified of the changes that will see fewer staff at branches. 
No branches will be closed as a result of the move. And Telstra is unlikely to charge customers more to use its 5G network than it's now charging for the 4G network, Chief Executive Andy Penn said. Speaking at MWC, the world's largest mobile telecommunications conference in Barcelona, Mr Penn said that while Telstra would formally announce the price of the high-speed 5G network when phones and modems were available that could use the network, the core connectivity plans probably wouldn't be differentially priced compared to the pricing of Telstra's current connectivity plans. And logistics group Brambles has sold its IFCO reusable plastics containers business for US $2.51 billion, that's $3.52 billion Aussie, and will return a large chunk of the proceeds to shareholders. Private equity firm Triton and Luxinva, a subsidiary of the Abu Dhabi Investments Authority, will acquire the business. IFCO, which Brambles bought in 2010 for US $1.25 billion, is based in Germany and operates a pool of more than 300 million reusable plastic containers and tubs used to transport fresh fruit and vegetables, meat and fish to thousands of retailers across Europe, the United States and Asia. The company said it would return as much as US $1.95 billion of the proceeds to shareholders. This will be made up of a pro rata return of cash of about US $300 million and on-market share buyback of up to US $1.65 billion. And Canadian fertiliser maker Nutrien Limited is in talks for a potential deal involving Australian rural services firm Ruralco. Ruralco has a market value of $321.5 million. Nutrien was created when Potash Corporation and Agrium merged in 2017. If it proceeds beyond an agreement between both boards, the deal would still require shareholder support and Foreign Investment Review Board and Australian Competition Consumer Commission approval. The deal would combine two of the big three rural service providers in Australia. Ruralco has a network of 50 specialist majority-owned rural supply finance, insurance, grain and water service businesses in all states and the Northern Territory, with brands including CRT, Rodwells, Roberts Limited, Primaries, BGA Agri-Services, Grant Daniel & Long, Territory Rural and live exporter Frontier International. It's understood that Ruralco has agreed to the $460 million deal and has gone into a trading halt. The deal will see Rural Co. shareholders being offered up to $4.40 a share, more than a 40% premium to their last closing price. And coal and gas power generator Alinta Energy will build a $400 million farm in the Midwest of Western Australia by the middle of next year in its first direct commitments to building a renewable energy generation on either side of the country. The 214-megawatt Yandon wind farm is to be built and maintained by global wind technology company Vestas at a site about 175 kilometres north of Perth. And TPG Telecom will write down the value of its abandoned mobile network by $228 million following its decision to cancel construction because of the government's ban on Huawei providing equipment for 5G networks. Huawei is TPG's main mobile equipment vendor and the $6.15 billion telco last month said the ban left it no choice but to stop building its 4G network. It said this meant it could not upgrade the network to 5G. And Amazon Australia has announced it will transition workers at its fulfilment centres to permanent jobs over the next year. It says it will create 500 new permanent roles at its warehouses following criticisms of its work practices and total reliance on casual workers. And the profit reporting season is finally ending. Here are the latest results. Construction firm Landlist's half-year results for financial year 2019 showed profit falling 96% to 
15.7 million compared to the year earlier period. Betting retailer Adair's net profit rose 6.8% to 14.9 million in the December half. Insurance giant QBE posted full year net profit of US 390 million, that's $547 million, after shedding a number of overseas businesses and a fall in the number of natural catastrophe claims. G8's earnings before interest and tax came in at $136.6 million. All Media reported a 29% increase in gross profit to $225.7 million. Energy Australia's net earnings jumped 24% in 2018 to $566 million. Estia Health reported a 3.1% lift in earnings to $46.9 million. Caltex Australia announced a full-year replacement cost operating profit of $558 million, along with a $260 million buyback. Afterpay has reported a loss of $22.2 million. Law firm Slater & Gordon posted a $10.3 million loss. Insitech Pivot said its full-year pre-tax profit will fall as much as $120 million because of the heavy rains in North Queensland. Jewellery retailer Michael Hill's net profit fell 36.4% to $19.5 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I talk to Scarlett Vester, a personal branding expert titled The Human Brand Futurist and the founder of the Mrs V Shift. She'll be talking about how executives, entrepreneurs and small business owners can build unique personal brands that stand out in an age when technology and artificial intelligence is changing business. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver, assessing the latest profit reporting season and how Australian businesses are tracking. And of course, I'll bring, bring you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.